Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When most people think about the Bible, they think about a verse or maybe, at best, a passage. So you think about the Bible, you think about something like uh, John 3.16, a verse. Or you might think like a, uh, you might think about a longer passage like the Ten Commandments or the 23rd Psalm or the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse, which is two chapters long. But all of that, I'm talking about the verse divisions and the chapter divisions, were added after the Bible was written. It was not uh, put in there by the original authors by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, The way God wrote the Bible is by books, not by chapters, not by verses, but by books. So if we had the Bible in its original form, we would have the book of Genesis. No chapters, no verses, just the whole book of Genesis. And the same thing goes for every book in the Bible. Now, that being the case, I think we ought to look at the books in the Bible uh, the way they're written. We ought to look at them as books, And that is, we ought to get the bird's eye view of the whole book as well as look at the little individual verses. A very simple illustration, though I think a better analysis could be given of the book of Acts, but the book of Acts is uh, a simple, very simple illustration. Acts 1.8 says, But you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, That verse is one way to get the whole view of the book of Acts. It starts in Jerusalem, it spreads to Judea, it goes to Samaria, and from there it goes to the rest of the world all the way to Rome. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We ought to look at the Bible in terms of its books, And the way to do that is to get the big picture of the whole book. Now, we have come to the end of studying the book of Genesis. So what I'd like to do before we leave this book is do just that with this book. What is the big picture? What's the summary? What's the Reader's Digest version, so to speak, of the book of Genesis. I think this is a particularly important test case because if you get what I'm going to say tonight at the end, it really makes this book make sense as Moses wrote it, wrote it and as it was intended to be understood. So, let me discuss a couple of things about this book. I want to start with the subject. What is the subject of the book of Genesis? I think if I were to 
ask the average uh, church congregation that question, they would come back and tell me that the subject of the book is beginnings or origin. That the book of Genesis uh, tells us about the beginning of creation, the beginning of the human race, men and women, beginning of the family, the beginning of work, the beginning of sin, the beginning of the human races, languages, civilizations, and on it goes. Now, I am not denying that those things are there. I am simply denying that there's more there than just the beginnings of various things. As a matter of fact, that explanation of Genesis doesn't even begin to explain what's in this book. For example, it has 11 chapters on the creation of the earth and human beings and sin. Then it has 39 chapters on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if you say it's a book of the beginnings, that's true at the beginning of the book, but the deeper you get into the book, the less that is true. Just look at it. One chapter on the creation of the earth. One chapter on the creation of human beings. One chapter on the origin of sin. Three chapters on the flood. Then 13 or 14, depending on how you count, chapters on Abraham. Then there's a chapter and a half on Isaac. Ten chapters on Jacob. And 13 chapters on Joseph. So the whole book is uh, out of balance. There's no symmetry in the book. It doesn't make sense. Why is he giving so much attention to Abraham? And why is he giving so much space to Joseph? He wasn't a patriarch. Matter of fact, I have a pastor friend who uh, lives in another state, and he calls me all the time. We chat, and he called me today. And he said, what are you speaking on tonight? And I said, Genesis. And I explained to him what I just explained to you, that the book is out of balance, so to speak. And I mentioned the fact that 13 chapters are given to Joseph. And he's not even a patriarch. And my friend said, nor was he even in the line of Christ. And I said, wow, hadn't thought of that. But that's another reason why this book is just, just out of balance. I'm using out of balance, and what I mean by that is we have 13 chapters on Joseph and 13 or 14 on Abraham, and so you can't call this book the book of beginnings. And while that's there, there's much, much more than's there. Now, somebody's going to hear this and say, well, if that's the case, why is it called Genesis? Uh, how did it get its name? Does it Genesis mean beginning? And the answer is yes, it does. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, the word Genesis uh, implies that. But what you need to know is that Moses didn't give the book the name of Genesis. Uh, 
It's taken from the Septuagint. Now let me explain the Septuagint. That's a big fancy word, isn't it? Um, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Ptolemy Philadelphia, who lived between 285 and 247 B.C., ordered that a Greek translation of the Old Testament be made in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. Josephus, a historian who lived in the first century, says that 72 priests made the translation in 72 days. Those, there were six priests from each of the 12 tribes. The Hebrew book has a Greek name. Genesis is derived from a Greek word which means to give birth to or to begat. The Septuagint translates it as the book of beginnings. So that came hundreds of years after Moses penned the pages of this book. So the title... Genesis does not give you the subject of the book. Well, if that's not the subject, what is? Well, there are a number of different suggestions to that. And some years ago, when I was grappling with the book, I decided that perhaps the subject of the book was something like election. God elected, chose to create the world. God chose to create the human race. God chose to allow the human race to sin. God chose for there to be a flood. But the real heart of this book, and as I went through it, I pointed this out, is the promise God made to Abraham. So, God elected, selected, chose Abraham and said to him, I am going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you and your descendants the land. And from there it went to Isaac and from Isaac it went to Jacob. And that is really the heart of this book. So God chose one nation through whom he would bless all nations. And as this book indicates, through him, through Abraham, and through that nation, the Jewish people, would come the Messiah. Now, uh, through them would come the Scripture. So God chose this one nation, the Jews, starting with Abraham, to give them the land, to bless all nations through them, which is what Genesis 12 says, including bringing the Messiah and giving us the Hebrew Scriptures that we call the Old Testament. All right, the first thing you need to know about any book you pick up is what is the subject. I mean, just think about that for a second. If you're going to read a book on... A subject, you want to know, you want a book on that subject. So if you want to read a book on how to bake an apple pie, what kind of book are you looking for? What is the subject of the book you're looking for? A cookbook. 
And if you want to know how to repair a car, you pick a book with the subject of how to repair a car. That's the first thing you need to know about any book, including each of the 66 books of the Bible. What is the second thing you need to know? Well, if you read books at all, uh, then you know how to read a book. The first thing you need to know is what's the subject. What's the second thing you need to know? What are the divisions of that subject? How is the author going to divide this subject? And where do you find that in a modern book? And the answer is the table of contents. So you look at the subject of the book, then you open the book, and you look at the table of contents, and you see what subjects he's going to cover, but those subjects are a division of the main subject of the book. So you peel off the shelf a cookbook, and it has a chapter on appetizers, or it has a chapter on entrees, has a chapter on uh, side dishes, or it has a chapter on desserts. And those are, the, those are the divisions of the subject of a cookbook. Or if you pick the book on how to repair a car, you might have one on you know, how to fix the engine and how to fix a transmission and yada, yada, yada. So how do you do that with the book of the Bible? And the answer is sometimes the author gives you clues as to his divisions, and sometimes you have to figure it out by the content of the book. I mean, if you're sailing along reading about entrees, and he doesn't have a chapter break, but all of a sudden he's talking about baking an apple pie, you know we've changed subjects from entrees to desserts. And that's what goes on in trying to figure out what's going on in the Bible. You should read it and ask, what is the table of contents? What are the divisions of this book? Now, you don't have to do all that work. Bible students and scholars have done it for you. And if you get a good study Bible, there will be an introduction in the beginning of the book and it'll give you an outline. That outline is like the table of contents. And before you read any book of the Bible, you should go to that page and just get an overview, a bird's eye view of that book. It'll make the book make more sense. And you should specifically ask, what is the subject and what is the structure of the book? Now, we're talking about the book of Genesis. And if you followed me as I went through the book, you know that several times I pointed out the little expression, this is the generation of. It appears 11 times in the book of Genesis. And it is clearly the demarcation of going from one subject to another. Moses is giving us the table of contents, the division of the book. All around that phrase, this is the generation of. Now, as I pointed out, as we hit these various phrases, especially the first time we hit it, there's a debate as to exactly what that phrase means. 
Some say that it refers to what has been said. In other words, it is talking about the preceding material. That fits in some cases, or seems to, but it doesn't fit every case. So the traditional view is that it, it is explaining what is following. So it's sort of like the chapter title. It's the heading, and what comes after that is that, what that title tells you. I personally think that that's what's going on in this book. So, as one Hebrew scholar said, this phrase could be translated, or paraphrase, this is what became of. So every time you hit that little expression, just think, he's now going to tell us what became of the person that he mentions. So he talks about the generation of Noah. And that means he's going to tell us not about Noah, but what became of the generation of Noah. Now, with that in mind, I um, passed out a sheet that gives the structure of Genesis. So if you've got that, look at it, and uh, let me run through those cases where uh, that little phrase appears. Uh, in my view, uh, there's an introduction, and that begins with the first verse and goes through chapter 2, verse 3. Then we have these expressions, the generation of. The first one is in 2-4, and it's the generation of the heaven and the earth. But the heaven and the earth were created back in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. So this is what happened to the heaven and the earth. And that goes from 2.4 to 4.16. Then there's a very unique expression. It happens in 5.1, and it's called the book of the generation of Adam. Now, that is unique. It only appears once in the whole book, and I'm going to come back to it because, in my opinion, that is a very important expression that really unlocks some of the secrets of this book. At any rate, that goes from 5.1 to 6.1. But we've already had the creation of Adam. So this is the generation of Adam means this is what happened uh, to Adam, his descendants. Then there's the generation of Noah, 6.9 through the end of chapter 9. The generation of the sons of Noah, in 10.1 through 11.9, the sons of Shem, in 11.10 through the rest of, uh, through verse 26, the generation of Terah, which is in 11.27 through 25.11, and that is his father and covers Abraham. Then there's the generation of Ishmael, which is very short, 25.12 to 18, the generation of Isaac, which isn't uh, that long either as compared to some of the others. It goes from 2519 through, uh, it should say, I think, 3229. I think there's a misprint on that page. Then there's the generation of Esau, which is chapter 31 to chapter 36, verse 8. The generation of Esau is given again 
in 3698 through 371, and finally the generation of Jacob, 372 to the end of the book in chapter 50, verse 26. Now, it is unmistakable. Keep in mind, as I explained a minute ago, there are no chapters, there are no verses in the original manuscript. If you just had the book of Genesis on the table and you tried to make sense out of it and you were an observant reader, you would notice this little phrase, the generation of, the generation of, the generation of, the generation of, over and over again, and that's the author telling us what are the divisions of this book. So, I suggested the subject of the book was election. God elected, selected these individuals, and that is the big overview of the book. Now, Bible students aren't satisfied with that. It's too long, for one thing. So they look at this list, and they want to lump them together. A perfectly legitimate exercise, I might add. So they come up with a more formal outline and divide the book into two major parts. The first part could be called God's Election. It's what I think is the subject in the primeval history of humanity. Primeval is a word that simply means the early ages of humanity. Under that, that goes from chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 26, and under that heading would come the creation of the earth, the development of sin, the judgment of the flood, and the descendants of Noah. It is unmistakable that those early chapters from 1-1 through 11-26 are dealing with something radically different than the rest of the book. The rest of the book clearly deals with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So it's easy to see that there's two major divisions in the book. And the first part of the book could be titled God's Election, in the primeval history of humanity, and the second part of the book could be called God's election in the patriarchal history of Israel. And so there is where we find the story of Abraham, the story of Isaac, the story of Jacob, and the story of Joseph. He gets so much attention. He's not a patriarch. Why does he get 13 chapters? Well, that's the problem. If you lay this book out, it looks like, as I said a while ago, it is out of balance. And this overview of these headings demonstrate that. Uh, as I said earlier, there's one chapter on the creation of the world. There's one chapter on the creation of humanity. There's one chapter on the origin of sin, three on the flood, 13 or 14 on Abraham, a chapter and a half on Isaac, 10 chapters on Jacob, and 13 chapters on Joseph. Now, when you lay the book out in terms of its content, you start scratching your head. 
How did Joseph get so much attention? Why does he get so much material? Especially if the point of the book has to do with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why give all that attention to Joseph? Uh, To appreciate what's going on in Genesis, to explain the question I keep posing, it seems to me that you have to know more than the subject and the structure. You need to know the author, the recipients, and the purpose. So, let's look at other aspects of the book of Genesis. So far, I've talked about the subject, election. I've talked about the structure. It's structured around those 11 statements that can be summarized otherwise. And now I want to talk about the author the third aspect of Genesis. Who wrote Genesis? Well, in Sunday school you learn Moses wrote Genesis, right? How do you know that? The book of Genesis never says that. So how do you know that? I think it's significant. You get to some of the other books Moses wrote, and it says the word of the Lord came to Moses. Doesn't say that in Genesis. Never says he's the author. Never says God spoke to him. So what's going on here? I believe Moses wrote the book of Genesis. But how do you know that? Well, here's how we know that. The first five books of the Bible are a unit. It's called the Pentateuch. And the way we know that is if you turn to Exodus 1.1, It starts with the word and, indicating it's connected to Genesis. Uh, And the Pentateuch claims, that is the rest of it, that Moses was the author, and I could give you verses in the rest of the Pentateuch, but I'm not going to bore you with all those details. The point is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are a unit Exodus says, I'm not starting something new, and I'm continuing what's been written, and the rest of it is clearly attributed to Moses. Therefore, Moses must have written Genesis. Second reason we believe Moses wrote Genesis is other Old Testament books testify to the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Those five books, and they're a unit. The third reason is the New Testament confirms the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the other books besides Genesis. And finally, both Jews and Christians throughout history have claimed that Moses wrote it. That is a very long-standing ancient tradition. So, uh, the structure of Genesis is marked by these are the generations of. That's interesting. Moses wrote it, but he used that little phrase, these are the generations of. Now, do you remember I said there's one of those phrases that is unique? Remember what it was? That I put you to sleep already. It was in chapter 5, verse 1. It's on that page I passed out. This is the book of the generation of. Wow. Wow. Now, what I'm about to tell you 
is not original with me. I, others have taught it, and I think it has some really interesting possibilities. The idea is something like this, that those 11 things, this is the generation of, this is the generation of, that I told you about, those were books. Those were books that Moses used to write the book of Genesis. Now let's think about this for a second. When did Moses live? I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but uh, that's important to understand this book. But right now, let me just get a little ahead of myself and say roughly around 1450. Okay? He lived past that. That's the rough, roughly the date of the Exodus. Uh, when did Abraham live? Very rough, roughly 2000. Abraham lived 500 years before Moses. How old is America? 200? Well, that's like Moses living now and going back 500 years. To go back 500 years, you'd have to go back to 15, 1600, right? Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, and the date that's usually given for that is 1517. So you'd have to go back that far to get the span of time between Abraham and Moses. So where did Moses get his information? Now, we who believe the Bible is the Word of God say the Holy Spirit directed him. I believe that. But if you read the Bible carefully, you will know that there's a difference between revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation says God reveals something to you directly. And the word of the Lord came too, and you wrote it down. Revelation is the Ten Commandments. God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses. Inspiration is that God superintended the authors to write down what he directed them to write down. But that may not have been something God revealed to them. It may have been something they experienced. For example, if Job wrote the book of Job, God didn't have to reveal that to him. He lived it. So inspiration is he wrote it down. Now, it's very clear, especially in the historical books of the Bible, that the authors used written sources. They had access to material that was written, and in the historical books, the authors say this is written, or this story is written in, and it names a secular source that we don't have anymore. So revelation is God directly reveals something. Inspiration is God directed you to write it down. And just because he told you to write it down doesn't mean he revealed it to you. You may have learned it either from your experience or from reading some other book. I personally believe 
that the book of Genesis is the word of God. Moses wrote it. I also believe it's very, very possible he used written sources and he told us what those sources were in that little phrase, these are the generations of. Now let's suppose that he had a source for the flood that went all the way back to the flood. I think this gives this book some authenticity that it doesn't give, uh, is often not given credit for. Imagine if he had these stories written in book form and he then became the editor of the book of Genesis. I think that that is a very good possibility. So, uh, if you look at the book of Kings and Chronicles, what I'm saying is clearly there. The events recorded in Genesis then, and this is my point, came from first-hand experience. So that Moses was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down first-hand experiences by people who originally wrote it down hundreds of years before. All right, I've talked about the subject, I've talked about the structure, I've talked about the author. The next thing I want to talk about is who are the recipients? Who received this book? Well, now we've got to fast forward from Abraham all the way to Moses. Moses wrote, then who received it? The generation that lived when Moses lived. And what generation might that be? And the answer is the Exodus generation. So Moses led them out of Egypt, up to Kadesh Barnea. They refused to go in. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They came up to the plain of Moab on the east side of the Jordan. They crossed over the Jordan, and they entered the land. Now, Moses was not allowed to enter the land. He died in the plain of Moab. But that's the span of uh, better than 40 years. He lived 120. So the question is, at what point did he write all of this? Now, we don't know for certain. But it's a good guess uh, as to when he wrote it. Now, before I tell you this, I want to say he could have written it before they left Egypt. He could have written it right after they left Egypt. He could have written it when they were at Mount Sinai. He could have written it those 40 years they were wandering around in the wilderness. He could have written it in the plain of Moab where he died. Nobody knows for certain. However, if you take the whole five books as a unit, it stands to reason he wrote this one first, and it has been suggested by one scholar that maybe Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers were something like a journal, that he wrote it as he was going through the wilderness wanderings. So after they got out of Egypt, uh, he wrote Exodus, and he began by writing Genesis. And then, uh, and that many had to write Leviticus because it's the companion to Exodus. Exodus tells you what to build the tabernacle, and Leviticus tells you what to do with the tabernacle and some other things. And then Numbers is them wandering around, and Deuteronomy is the message he delivered in the plain of Moab before he died. So it stands to reason he wrote this book first, 
and probably right after the Exodus, perhaps before they got to Sinai, maybe just before they left to go out of Egypt. So this one, no doubt, was written early, at least earlier than the other four books of the Pentateuch. Now, I want to mention one other thing, and then I'm going to put all this together. Why did he do this? And that's the real interesting question. Why did he write all this? Why did he write Genesis? And I'm going to suggest the purpose of Genesis is to inform the Jews in the wilderness about God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would get the land of Canaan and to explain to them how they got to Egypt. Now let me repeat that. The purpose of Genesis is to inform the Jewish people in the wilderness about God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob namely that he would give them the land, and explain to them how they got to Egypt. Now, let me put it like this. Let's put ourselves in the historical situation. They were in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And Moses comes along and says, follow me. I'm going to take you out of the land of Egypt. And they no sooner got out of the land of Egypt than they encountered one problem right after the other. I mean, they didn't even get out of the country before the Egyptian army came after them. God delivered them from that. And then they get up to Kadesh Barnea and send spies into the land, and the spies come back and they say, man, we can't can't go into that land. There are giants in that land. We don't have an army that could take all that. Now, you know, of course, that in the wilderness they started murmuring. And let me just tell you, God takes a very dim view of complaining. You start complaining, God gets very upset at that because you're not trusting him, you're complaining. So I'm going to put myself in that historical situation and say it was something like this. They got a committee together. said, Go talk to Moses. People are really upset. They say, where are you taking us? And Moses calmly says, I'm taking you to Canaan. And they said, why in the world are you taking us to Canaan? Why, we had it better in Egypt. Why should we go there? Well, let me explain that God gave the land of Canaan to our forefathers who lived hundreds of years ago, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they say, huh, God, what God? The Egyptians had all kinds of gods. What God gave us the land? All right, I have to explain God to you. This is not like any gods you saw in Egypt. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. You understand what I'm telling you? The God who created the heavens and the earth and human beings gave the land of Canaan to our forefathers 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now put yourself in the historical situation. If Moses told that committee, I'm imagining, that went to him, what would be their next question? Where did they just come from? Egypt. Were they staying in the Hilton in Egypt? No, they were slaves in Egypt. So I can just imagine this committee saying to Moses, now Moses, if that God you're talking about is as big as you say he is, and he created the heavens and the earth and destroyed it with a flood, then how do you explain we ended up in Egypt, slaves? And Moses says, Oh, you got to know the rest of the story. That has to do with a fellow named Joseph. And that's why the story of Joseph is so important in the book of Genesis. It explains how the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got there. Without that part of the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis would not make a whole lot of sense. So putting all this together, the message of the book of Genesis is, the subject, remember, is God has elected the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the message is, God, the creator of the universe, chose the patriarchs and their descendants to give them the land of Palestine and to bless the world through them, but... They ended up in Egypt. And that, my friend, is the rest of the story. It's the book of Genesis. And to really understand it, you've got to put yourself in the historical situation of who wrote it and who received it and what questions they would be asking. So if I were going to sum up everything I've said in this message, I would say, the sum is simple. Moses wrote to the Exodus generation to tell them that the sovereign creator elected to give Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their seed the land of Palestine and to bless the world through them, but they ended up in Egypt. Now, what does that tell us? tells us a whole bunch of things. God, the creator, elects. I've been speaking about that in the book of Ephesians as we've been going through it on Sunday morning. God justifies. That's in the book of Genesis. God blesses, and the justification is by faith. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, I want to do a couple of things before I close. What I've done tonight is give you a bird's eye view, and that really isn't the best term I could use. I've given you an introduction to the book of Genesis. And basically, I've talked about who wrote it, who it, was, who it was written to, 
the subject slash the message, the development of that subject, and the purpose. You ought to look at that before you look at any book of the Bible. And as I mentioned, you can get that out of any good study Bible. Now, I don't talk about this a lot, but I happen to be the contributor to a study Bible that I happen to think is one of the best on the market. This is not a commercial. 25 years ago, they paid me a flat fee for what I wrote. I don't get any royalties from this, so it's not a commercial. But I highly recommend that you buy at least one copy of the NKJV Study Bible. NKJV stands for the New King James Study Bible. You can go online and get a hardback copy relatively cheap at Amazon. At the beginning of every book, the kinds of questions I've been asking are answered. Now, if you don't want to spend a few bucks on that book, I'll tell you where you can get that information free. I have a website, a personal website, that's called insightsfromtheword.com. That's a mouthful, so let me give you the shorthand version. If you go to the computer and type in kokoros.com, it'll take you to the same site. And if you get to that site, you'll see a ribbon at the top, and it'll say basic course. And then it says advanced courses, it says topical studies, theological courses, and so forth. All kinds of stuff up there. there all the articles I've ever written on a piece of my mind are up there. But if you go to that first tab that says Basic Courses and click on it, a menu will drop down. And there are 10 courses in that basic course. And one of them is called Bible Survey. If you click on it, a manuscript will open called The Bible Book by Book. And in that manuscript, I answer five questions on every book of the Bible and I do it in two pages, with the exception of um, one or two of the Gospels, and I have three pages. I couldn't condense it to two. But in almost all the books, I do it in two pages. I answer these five questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? Who are the recipients? What is the message, including what is the subject? What is the structure of the book that is an outline of the book? And what's the purpose? And I summarize those five questions in two pages for every book of the Bible, with the exceptions of the couple I chose three pages. In a short compass, I give you the answer to all these questions. I would highly recommend that when you read your Bible, you start with a good study Bible, and there are other good study Bibles on the market. The Ryrie Study Bible is a good study Bible, as well as the NKJV Study Bible. And or... Go to the computer, open it, and read those two pages, and you will have an introduction to that book. The Reader's Digest version before you start. How's that? Now, I want to do one other thing. Spiritually, some of the lessons of this book are, and I'm going to mention four. One, we're created by God. You know how significant that is? It's the book of Genesis that tells us we're created in the image of God. If we're not created in the image of God, what are we? 
Robots, machines, animals, accidents. It's the Christian faith and the Jewish faith that says, no, no, no. God told us we were created in his image, and therefore we have value. That comes out of the book of Genesis. Number two, we are fallen. When theologians grapple with this, they call the creation in God's image dignity, and they call the fallen state of humanity depravity. So human beings, on the one hand, have dignity. We're made in the image of God. We can think, we can feel, we can act. On the other hand, we're fallen. We disobeyed God. We have a sinful nature. And that means we can think, but we don't think straight. We can feel, but we don't feel like we should. We can act but we're disobedient in our actions. So it's the book of Genesis that gives us the origin of our creation and our fall into sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell into sin. All right. We're made in the image of God, but we're not God. We're not gods. We're not almighty. We're fallen creatures. Number three, we've been chosen. Now, I didn't plan this. I don't know how I could have. But this dovetails perfectly with what I'm going through on Sunday morning in the book of Ephesians. God chose us. We are his children by choice. Now, uh, that leads me to the fourth thing I say. But you must respond by faith. And that's the fourth truth in the book of Genesis. Genesis 15.6 says this. Abraham believed God, and God put righteousness to his credit just because he believed. When the New Testament is written, and the Apostle Paul wanted to prove that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are justified before God, that we are given the gift of eternal life, by faith, guess where he went? Genesis 15.6. He did that in the book of Romans. And he did it in the book of Galatians, teaching that today, if you wish to have your sins forgiven and a relationship with the God of the universe, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you, and who arose from the dead, and trust in him to get you to heaven and not what you do. That's what it means to be justified by faith. You are declared righteous because you have faith, not because you have righteousness or religiosity. Romans 4, 5 says, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, 
his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, I want to expand that fourth point for just a second, and I'll close. What I'm telling you is the spiritual impact of this book is that we're created by God, but we fell. God chose us, but we must believe. We must believe to be declared righteous, and we must live by faith. How many times in going through the book of Genesis that I point out, at this point, he didn't trust God. Abraham goes trucking down to Egypt and lies about his wife because he's afraid. That happens several times in the book. And then how many times in going through the book did I point out, and at that point, that person believed God? As a matter of fact, the last message I taught in the book of Genesis was entitled Mature Faith. Remember that? At the end of chapter 50, Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you intended that to me for evil, but God intended that to me for good. And I suggested that is mature faith. So it takes faith to establish a relationship with God, and it takes faith to walk with God. And that permeates the book of Genesis. The writer to the Hebrews picked that up. And when he wrote the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, he picks out person after person in the book of Genesis who did what they did by faith. So we normally think of the Pentateuch as the law, and it is, plenty of laws. Rabbis say there's 612 laws in the Pentateuch. There's plenty of law there, but it doesn't begin with the law. It begins with faith. So the point of the Pentateuch is you must first trust God to be declared righteous, and then you should obey what he tells you to do in his word. I think what I'm teaching isn't politically correct. Not in this uh, supposedly intellectually sophisticated age. We don't have to believe the scripture. We trust science. Now there's a lot of good stuff in science. But may I point out that you live by faith in something. According to the Bible, the issue is, what is the something? It needs to be the right something, the creator of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ. But, be that as it may, people believe something. And they trust something all the time, every day. Years ago, in a Newsweek magazine article written by George F. Will, he pointed out that millions pass through Chicago's O'Hare Airport, quote, obedient to disembodied voices electronically amplified, telling them to get on a cylinder of aluminum 
and be hurled by strange engines through the upper atmosphere. Passengers are content not to understand how it works. They just get on those planes and what? Trust that it works. And he said, and I quote, and we think of the 20th century as an age of, I'm sorry, I misread that. And we think of the 12th century as the age of faith. <laughs> we think they believed back in the Middle Ages. We're of the scientific age. Right, and you trust that cylinder of aluminum at 30,000 feet. That is faith. Well, I trust the living God and his word. That message begins in the book of Genesis. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us insight into all kinds of things, like how we got here, what happened to us, and yet at the same time that we are to trust you. Thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.